Thanks for listening to the Theology for the Rest of Us podcast by J.R. Foresteros. This is a class I taught at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene, so from time to time you'll hear questions being asked by the class. I do my best to repeat them so that you won't be lost as you listen. You can find more of my podcasts at my website, jrforesteros.com, and at storyman.us, where I co-host with Matt Michelados and Clay Morgan. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the class. Okay. So this is, again, as I said, the last week of Theology for the Rest of Us. So we're kind of getting to the end of a journey that we began by talking about theology in general, saying that, that theology really means words about God, which means that anyone who talks about or thinks about God is doing theology. And so the question isn't, should we or should we not do theology? It's how do we do theology well? And then this class has been an attempt to provide some framework for what a, some good theological questions and, and thoughtfulness look like. Uh, as what, what we're going to be talking about tonight, as Wesleyans uh, in the Holiness Denomination, we use a, a guide to theology called the West, Wesleyan Quadrilateral, uh, which we've been talking about and using all throughout the class. So there are, and what we mean by the quadrilateral is that there are four sources for us that guide our theological reflection. Uh, the first is Scripture. The most important is Scripture. By that we mean the Bible, right? The, the Protestant canon that we have, the 66 books uh, that we call the Old and the New Testament. The second is reason, our own ability to think and make sense of things and figure out if things fit together or not. And then, of course, experience, which is our own interactions with the world, our own experiences of God and of the church and of all of that kind of stuff. That all shapes how we do theology. And then also tradition, not just the holy tradition that we're a part of, but the whole long 2,000-year history of the church of people who have been thinking about and experiencing uh, Jesus and reading the scriptures and, and doing all of this together. They, they provide us with resources. So uh, I described it one time to someone who asked why we should read anything that's not the Bible. I said, well, because Christians for 2,000 years have also been reading the Bible and praying and experiencing God, and they, many of them were kind enough to write down their reflections. And so when I interact with church tradition, I'm not just limited to what the Holy Spirit reveals to me. I'm able to take in what the Holy Spirit has taught people for 2,000 years all across the world and all throughout history and all kinds of other cultures. And so their perspectives on God help me to understand God better because my own perspective is always limited. And it's, it's very easy for me to be wrong. And when I do theology in conjunction with my brothers and sisters in the church, not just in this particular building, but all throughout history of the church, uh, then, then it, it helps to refine and shape and guide my theology. Uh, so then we spent the next, what was that, I guess seven more weeks after that on a theological journey. And we, we started with the Trinity. We started with God, what it means that God is Trinity, and then moved through creation, through the Old Testament, through God interacting with humanity, through the covenants, right? We got all of that up to the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Why was he important? We talked about the Holy Spirit and who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does, one of which is constituting us as the church. So we spent a lot of time talking about what does it mean to be the church and how do, how do we be the church? What is the church? Uh, and then we ended, appropriately enough, at the end uh, with the theology of the last things and, and how is this all going to you know, end and what's after that. And so what we did now, I don't know how many of you have had theology classes at some point before, but typically when you take a theology class, it's what's called systematic theology. And that's not what we did in here. 
Uh, systematic theology is where they basically create a chart of all these different theological categories. If you're an engineering type person, you'll really enjoy systematic theology. But they'll say, okay, we'll do a theology of God, and then we'll do a theology of Jesus, and we'll do a theology of the Holy Spirit, and we'll do a theology of creation. And they just kind of break everything into categories that end up being kind of distinct from each other and a little bit artificial. And so what we did instead was we tried to use the story of the Bible as the guide for doing theology. So we started with the Trinity because the Bible starts with in the beginning God. So we just started there. And then we said in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So we talked about creation. And then we get, of course, to humanity. So we we just tried to follow the, the story arc of the scriptures and tried to do theology that shaped under a narrative of the scriptures. And, and, and scholars will call that a narrative theology. So uh, if you are feeling like you're ready to flex your theological muscles and go out and impress all of your friends, uh, and they say, well, that doesn't sound like the theology I've heard, because I'm sure I'll, that's what you guys all do in your spare time is discuss theology with your friends. Uh, they might be thinking about a systematic theology, and they're going to be using all kinds of big terms like homartiology and Christology and pneumatology and anthropology and lots of ology words, right? And particularly for this class, because it was meant to be an introductory class, it was meant to be something that anyone could get access to. I found personally the ology words tend to alienate people and scare you right out of the box, so we just kind of stayed away from all of that. We talked about a lot of the same stuff. We just did it, again, from a narrative approach where we tried to follow the, the, the narrative arc of the scripture. So um, if you like systematic theology, I have several books you can take with you and borrow, and we can talk about them. And uh, I, just, I just don't find that, that narrative theology, or I find that narrative theology is better because most of us live stories. You know, our, we, we think of our lives as having a beginning, a middle, and an end, and we kind of imagine ourselves as the main character in our own stories, and, you know, we have friends and enemies and all that kind of stuff, and uh, we just make sense of the world through story, and so it makes sense to me to do theology through story because that's how the Bible presents who God is and what God has done. It's always through stories. So uh, that's just for your information uh, as, as we move past this class. So what I want to do first tonight, uh, and well, this will probably take up a lot of our time, is, is go through a theological family tree so that you can kind of see where we are as the Church of the Nazarene and how we got here, what some of our influences are, uh, because I'm sure that most of you have talked with people who are not Nazarenes, and you may have friends and family that are not Nazarenes, but are Christian. They're in some other denomination. And for me, it's always helpful to see a big picture kind of a thing to know where we all fit. And, you know, even though we probably have a couple of weird, weird Uncle Festers in our theological family tree, we are all one big, mostly happy family. So um, here we go. All right, so obviously, as we talked about, I don't know, however long ago that was, a couple weeks ago, the church began in the first century with Jesus, right? Jesus told Peter, on this rock I will build my church, the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, there's this kind of weird thing that Christians do. Any time a new denomination starts or people decide to plant a church or something like that, you'll hear them say, well, we're just trying to be the New Testament church, okay? So there's this, like, assumption in Christendom that there was one New Testament church, and they all did everything the exact same way. Uh, that's not true. Uh, if you want to know whether or not that's true, just read through the New Testament, and you'll see all of these different people interacting with God in all of these different ways. Some of them were Jewish. Some of them were not Jewish. Some of them spoke Greek. Some of them spoke Aramaic. Some of them spoke Hebrew. There's all these different cultures, all these different people groups, all these different cities, all, these, you know, all this different stuff. And so what you actually see in the New Testament is that there are a bunch, that's why we drew it as roots, there are a bunch of different church communities. And this makes sense, right? Because remember how the church started. A guy named Jesus recruited a bunch of people to follow him around for a few years, 
Then he died and rose from the dead and said, okay, go keep doing what I've been doing. And then they they like scattered to the four winds. They went all over the known world and they just started planning church communities. People would have experiences of Jesus. They would believe in his resurrection and become saved. They'd you know, cross over from death into life. They would receive the power of the Holy Spirit and they would begin doing church together. And it, it ended up looking kind of like whatever it needed to look like in their particular area. So we know, for instance, in the city of Corinth, which is where a guy named Paul went and planted some churches, there were a bunch of different little house churches Right. And, and this would be this way. Right. We have, you know, in, in a month, there's probably around a thousand or twelve hundred people that attend here on a weekend. Right. If we did not have this building, but we still had that kind of number of people. I mean, imagine how many houses it would take for all of those people to be able to meet together. Right. I mean, it would take a few. It would. And imagine how quickly those house churches would all develop their own character. Right? Their own personalities. Because that's what, I mean, that's just normal. That's life. That's what people do, right? You'd have some that were more this kind of thing and some of them were that. And, and, be okay. and there would be very few times, if ever, that they would all get together in a big space and worship together. So, and that's how Corinth was. And so what you read in the letters that we call 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is Paul is writing to these churches and trying to address some of the issues that cropped up as all of these different little micro churches are trying to do church in the city of Corinth. Right? And so he'd be like, okay, so these house churches are fighting, and there's questions about these guys doing this. And he, you know, he was just having to kind of straighten things out. And so that's what we see as we in the New Testament. Is we see all of these different groups who are trying to figure out what it means that Jesus rose from the dead. Right? They're trying to figure it out. No, I mean, they, they don't have a Bible. They have, they have like what we would call an Old Testament, right? Some of them. Some of the Jewish communities have it. But a lot of them don't even have that. A lot of them just have what the person who planted their church came and taught them. They don't have anything written down yet. They won't for probably like another hundred years or so. And so that's why, you know, Paul's writing them letters. Some of these people are collecting the things that Jesus said and putting them into things that got started being called gospels. Right? And then those, you know, some of the churches start using them, they start passing them around, and they're saying, oh, this, this really helped us. This was really useful. And so they, they would copy it, and then they'd pass their copy on, and then those people would say, you know, you're right, this was useful, or... Uh, this didn't really work for us, you know, and the, but if it worked, they would, they would copy and then they would keep passing it around. And, and so over the first, you know, hundred years or so of the church, the teachings of Jesus and the experience of these churches under the guidance of the Holy Spirit started getting written down and passed around. And so, you know, a hundred years, 200 years, 300 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended to the throne of heaven, you have a big collection of writings that's getting passed all over the place. And some churches have some of it and some have the other part. And we're talking about all over the Roman Empire, right? Everywhere from what we would call now the Middle East to Spain, right? And so there's this huge amount of literature being generated. And they had to start trying to figure out, like, well, you know, some of these, some of these groups are starting to look really, really different from each other. And some of them are teaching things that are really, really different from each other. And so that we need some kind, I mean, it can't all be right, right? I mean, either, either Jesus was God or he wasn't, right? E- either either the, the Jewish scriptures are part of what we do or they're not. Like, there's some big questions that were trying to be asked. And so the churches started meeting together in what we now call the church councils, right? They started meeting together and they started asking these questions together. And actually, the first church council that we know of was in Acts chapter 15, And what had happened was the church had started in Jerusalem after Jesus had raised from the dead. 
And then it spread very quickly. You know, at, at the Pentecost event, you had people from all over the known world there, and they believed in Jesus' resurrection, and they went home and started teaching about all this stuff. And so the apostles, the 12 original followers of Jesus, they start going out and kind of working with these groups and, and all this kind of stuff. And then there's this guy, Paul, who starts going, and he starts going to non-Jewish people and telling them that they don't have to be Jewish to be Christian. He's saying that when Jesus rose from the dead, it inaugurated this new kind of humanity, and so you don't have to keep dietary laws, which was a big part of being Jewish. You don't have to be circumcised, which was a big part of all of these things that God had told his people to do. Paul's now saying, well, yeah, you, you want to be part of God's people, but you don't have to do that stuff anymore. And so Paul's going around planting all these churches, telling them they don't have to follow the Jewish Torah the way, right? And you have all of these other guys like Peter and James, you know, people that actually like hung out with Jesus and knew him that are like, whoa, Paul. And so they all got together in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 to decide what they should do. And they argued about it for a while. And then James, the brother of Jesus, who at that point was the leader of the Jerusalem church, passed down a ruling. He said, OK, guys, here's here's what we're going to do from here on out. Right. Gentiles don't have to get circumcised. They don't have to keep the dietary code. OK, actually, the only thing he said was. You just, if you're going to eat meat, don't eat meat that has blood in it, which means you have to eat your steak well done. So I'm glad we don't follow that rule anymore, but that was what James said we were supposed to do. Um, so there were, there were just a few things that he said. He said, okay, here's the, here's the rule. All the church came together, and they said, here's, here's, here's how we will define ourselves. Right? There, was some, there was some debate. Here's how we're going to define ourselves. And so the church followed this pattern over the next several hundred years. Where they, would get, they would get a big council together, and they would debate this stuff, and then they would decide it. So a couple of the famous church councils that you may have heard of. Uh, one is the Council of Nicaea in 325. This was actually called by Constantine, who was the first Christian emperor of Rome. Right? He converted to Christianity. And he basically said, if this is going to be the state religion, we need to figure out what's going on here. So he called all, the, all of the leaders of the church together, and he said, Make a decision about what the thing is going to be. Like, what, what, like, basically draw a circle, draw a sandbox that everyone's going to play inside and tell me who's in and who's out, right? And so, what came from that was what we now call the Nicene Creed. And that is predominant, that's the main creed that we use even to this day to define what it means to be orthodox. Orthodox is a, a, a Greek word that means right thinking. And so the, 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 the Nicene Creed is the guide to Orthodox Christianity. Basically, if a person can affirm the Nicene Creed, they're considered Orthodox. If, and, and there are certain denominations, people who claim to be Christian, who don't affirm the Nicene Creed. And, and a lot of what's in the Nicene Creed is Trinitarian language. This was one of the ones that really clarified the Trinity for us. And so a lot of them would say that, like, they don't believe that the Holy Spirit is God, right? That God is just Jesus and the Son. Or, like, uh, that they don't believe that. So this, this would be, for instance, if you have any friends who are Jehovah's Witness. This would be why Jehovah's Witnesses are not considered part of Orthodox Christianity, because they say that, there is, that Jehovah is God, is God and Jesus is a created being, that Jesus is not God. Okay, now that's outside the Nicene Creed. That's outside of Orthodoxy. And so we would say... Well, we love you guys, but you're not like you're not in the family. This is outside of what it means to be orthodox. And so what you'll find, even in the Nicene Creed, is that orthodoxy, as you can see from the tree, it's a big, wide net or tree, right, that has lots of room for, for differing beliefs. But at some point, there is a place where you draw a line and say, well, if you're past this line, you're not in anymore. And, and again, for basically everyone on this tree, that's the, that's the Nicene Creed. 
okay? And that, that was in, uh, in 325. Uh, a few years after that, in 360, was another church council called the Council of Constantinople. Uh, that was where, again, this sounds like weird that we would argue about this today, but that was where they decided that Christ and the Father are of the same substance. That, again, that Jesus is not fundamentally different from God, but that they are the same kind of the same being, right? That Jesus is not created later. That was, a, that was something the church had to figure out. Uh, Council of Chalcedon in 451 is where they talked about for the first time where they really clarified that Jesus is fully human and fully God. That wasn't until 451. So over 400 years after Jesus ascended into heaven was when we finally, the church finally said, yeah, this is, this is, this is important enough that, that we're going to kind of make this part of our identity. And really the Council of Chalcedon, which again is in 451, is the last church council that all of these Protestant churches consider to be authoritative. Okay, now the, the Catholic Church has continued to have councils since then. How many of you were alive for Vatican II? Any of you remember that? A few of you? Okay, Vatican II, if, 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 you, if you have any friends who are uh, older Catholics who grew up like in the 50s, who went to Catholic Church, you can ask them about this. The, Vatican II was when the Catholics finally stopped doing the Mass in Latin and started doing it in their own languages. And when the priest turned, because the, the priest, when he would do the Mass, always used to face away from the congregation because it was like he was talking to God, right? And so the Vatican II is when he finally turned around during the Mass and spoke. So the Vatican II made a bunch of huge changes. That was in, uh, that was in the 60s. I don't remember exactly when. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. So, uh, so it was it was it was a huge thing. But again, Protestants that didn't really affect because by that point we no longer considered ourselves part of the Catholic tradition. So outside of that, so yeah, great. Um, when did they when did they actually make that change for the for the priest to turn around? That was in the 1960s. So very recently, yeah. I have a question. Yeah. Okay, you mentioned that um, James is brother of Christ. Yes. That he was the leader of the Jerusalem church? Right. Uh-huh. So is the book of James in the Bible, is that, that, that James? We think so. The question is, is the book of James in the Bible James the brother of Christ? Um, as with many of the books in the New Testament, it doesn't actually um, identify. Uh, I'd have, I think James might identify itself as, I'd have to go back and look at James off the top of my head. If anyone has a Bible, you can look real quick. Um, if... That's what church tradition thinks. So either, either it's identified in there, it says James, the brother of Christ, or we don't know who it just says a James, and there's like 10 Jameses. You know, James, James is about as common a name back then as it is today. And so, um, but, but with a lot of the New Testament books, we don't know who the author is. So, for instance, even uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those names were not added in, to them until like 300, and they were written in the first century. And so again, what now, what happened? See, that sounds weird to us, but that's just how the world worked back then. They got passed around for a few hundred years, and it was just passed on by word of mouth who wrote them. And so we're not totally sure today if Mark was written by John Mark, the guy that's mentioned in the book of Acts, or not. Like, that's what church tradition says. The book itself never says that. Actually, the Bible never says that anywhere. That's just, again, that's what... I think it was like in 350s, there was a guy named Eusebius who was a church historian who wrote this stuff down. He was like the first person that seemed to care who wrote everything. And so he was like, oh, this guy wrote this and this guy wrote that. But when you read Eusebius's church history, he's like, oh, well, I heard this from a guy who heard it 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 from a guy who talked to a guy who heard it from a guy who heard it from a guy. Like that's, that's his sources, right? 
So it's fairly, it's like, eh. But again, it also doesn't really matter if it was Mark or some guy named Bob, you know, like whatever. It's still the scriptures. So did you look up James? Okay, so it just says James, the servant of God. We don't know which James. Is that James the apostle, right? Is that James the brother of Jesus? Now, again, according to church tradition, it's James the brother of Jesus. Okay. But we don't know that for sure because the book doesn't tell us. Nobody knows more than I do. Right, well, right. Well, it depends on how much weight you put on church tradition. Um, there are some people who say, if that's what the church says, that's it, that's it. For me, I'm like, well, I don't actually, again, I don't, care a whole lot whether it was James the brother of Jesus or James the disciple or some other James that we never heard of he just wrote this book because what matters less than who wrote it is that the church found the Holy Spirit to be working through this as scripture and saved it for us so that's that's what matters is that it's scripture the author is less important to me you know um, I guess there would probably be people that would fight me on that but I wouldn't want to fight them I'd just be like okay like some of the theologians established there were two James, but uh, what you said, uh, recently they discovered an ossuary that yeah. was James. The, the, the brother of Jesus, yeah. Yeah, allegedly, you know, again, about, usually around Easter time, they make some new world-changing archaeological discovery, you know. Um, and a few years ago, what JR is talking about is they found a, a bone box, which is, again, that's how they used to bury people, and it was allegedly containing the bones of James, the brother of Jesus, Maybe. I mean, again, maybe. Like, this is, the, this is the problem. And you find this, if you ever go to the Holy Land, like, there are tour guides who will tell you that everything is something biblical, right? And this has been going on since the Middle Ages. We have reports from the Crusades that they would go over there, and entrepreneurial people would say, oh, hey, all these Christians are coming. Quick, get a Bible. They'd read it, and they'd be like, hey, remember that story where Jesus said, if you are silent, even the rocks will cry out? well, see this rock? See how it kind of looks like it has a mouth on it? And they're like, yeah. They're like, well, this was the rock he was pointing to. And this is like, you know, 1300s. And the Christians would be like, oh, well, that's so cool. I'm going to take it back with us. And they'd, and they'd buy the rock for some absorbent amount of money from this guy that, you know, it's, we don't know. I mean, there's, there's very few, there's some really good archaeological resources that talk about that kind of stuff if you're interested in that kind of stuff. You know, like the Sermon on the Mount, Mount like you can go to the church of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a beautiful church. It's on a mountain sitting over the Sea of Galilee. It has a gorgeous view. And they're like, well, this is, the, this is the spot where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. And when you're up there, you're like, well, I mean, I can see it. It's gorgeous here. It'd be a great place to use. You can yell and, you know, whatever. But, like, there were no church, there were no Christians venerating that spot until like 1000 AD so like maybe that's the one but the problem is when you're standing on the mount and you're looking around like there's like 10 other mountains that you can see like maybe it was that one or maybe it was that one or maybe it was that like we don't and it's I mean again he just he walked up on the side of a hill and talked to people it's not like he built a house there or something like something like that it's just so you don't know and again does it matter i don't know probably not that much there are now there are a few places that we're pretty sure about but usually it's because there were christians worshiping there very 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 early on uh and so that that tends to be better evidence that you know particularly if it's before 300 because 300 is when constantine made christianity legal 
right? And so if there were Christians worshiping there before 300, when Christianity was illegal, that must mean it was really, really meaningful because they were risking a lot to, to make that a meeting place. And so there are a few places that have Christian remains and ruins and stuff like that dating before 300, and that tends to be when people say, oh, this, this is more probably the spot. So, uh, I'm sorry, if you're not interested in archaeology, that's probably super boring. But it is, it is kind of funny how big a deal we make out of some things that maybe aren't such a big deal. Uh, at least, again, they're not a big deal to me. So I'm not, also not an archaeologist. But uh, Okay, so as we're moving towards orthodoxy, back to our, our tree analogy, right? Uh, what we're finding is that the, the, the more these churches are meeting and talking and forming, the more orthodoxy is taking shape. This is, so this is the time, again, when like the Nicene Creed, uh, several other important church creeds came out of this time. This is also the time when the scriptures were canonized, when we finally said, okay, these are the books that are our New Testament. Uh, and again, there, what's surprising to a lot of people is that that actually did not come out of a church council. There was, there was never a council that was brought together for people to be like, we better figure out what's in the Bible. The way that that happened, the way the New Testament came together, the way it was chosen, was by basically by use. And the perhaps the best analogy is like a sifter. Okay, you know, when you put stuff in a sifter and you shake it, like eventually all the cruddy stuff is separated from the good stuff. And that's sort of what we did with the scriptures. Again, there were dozens of of writings that were put together in the first couple of hundred years after Jesus rose from the dead. Dozens of them. You can find most of them on Google. Okay, they're not secret, despite what Dan Brown would have you to believe, right? I mean, they're out there, okay? And they were getting passed around. And some churches were using them, and some churches weren't. And the, the ones that worked, and what I mean by work, is the ones that the Holy Spirit worked through, the ones that the Holy Spirit used to encourage and inspire and admonish and correct the church stayed. And the ones that weren't, the ones that the Spirit wasn't using, they got left to the wayside. And after about 400-ish years of sifting, we ended up with what we have as our New Testament. And so that, that troubles some people. They're like, oh, are you saying that like, you know, God didn't hand-deliver the New Testament to the Pope or something like that? And I'm like, no, that never happened. Okay? For me, I think that's actually pretty cool because that means that who authored the scriptures was the church under the authority of the Holy Spirit, right? If you believe in the Holy Spirit, if you believe that the Holy Spirit is the one who guides the church, who comprises the church in its most essential form, then that shouldn't bother you that the church is the one that put together the New Testament because the church is under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one that inspired those books anyway. And so if, if, if you step back from it and let it all be a work of the Spirit— uh, that's not problematic for, for a believer. Now, if you don't believe in the Holy Spirit, that becomes more of an issue for sort of people. And I, again, I have some friends who are not Christians that that's, you know, they'll, they'll really, when we get into debates, that's where they really take me to task is the, how the scriptures came together. And I'm like, eh, for me, it's just not a problem, you know. But I have, a, I have a prior theological commitment to the Holy Spirit. And so that's not an issue for me. And when they don't have that, I can understand how it would be an issue, um, and I just sort of shrug my shoulders and say, sorry, it's not, it's not for me. And I don't mean that in a sarcastic or a snarky way. I just mean, yeah, I put it all at the feet of the Holy Spirit. And if there's not a Holy Spirit, I'm in a lot of trouble. Um, and I'm, I'm okay with that. So um, any questions about that, about the scriptures coming together or the kind of the formation of the Orthodox kind of one church around the world? And when I say around the world, I mean the known world, right, which is essentially like the Greco-Roman Empire. Which? Oh, yeah, hang on real quick. Yes, 
We'll get there. That's next. So yes. Yep. I, I was trying to think which one of these councils, they had certain criteria, like their books, like Esther and Maccabees and whatnot, called the Apocrypha. The Apocryphal books, yep. It didn't get included. But they had a test, like um, was the author identifiable? Uh, was he known to uh, be alive at the time of Jesus, mm -hmm. travel with Jesus? Uh, are there witnesses that affirm that this was one of the apostles or one right. of the leaders? Uh, is, is what he's saying consistent with what Christ taught and, right. and the Torah to some degree? But uh, uh, they looked for that consistency all throughout, but they had certain criteria that I think it was the Nicene. Oh, uh, you see, to... you see several different lists appearing uh, pretty early. I mean, there's some of the lists that are uh, lists of books of the Bible that are appearing as early as like the two and three hundreds, which is pre-Nicene. Um, and and Jer so Jared was saying that there are certain criteria that were used. One is like, was it written by someone that knew Jesus? You know, are there witnesses that can verify it? Is it consistent with? And and there were the the tricky part is again, there was never a council where they sat down and said, here's the list. We're not leaving until we have twenty seven. You know, there, that that just that never happened. And the um, the criteria aren't applied across the board universally all the time. Um, again, like the, 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 was it written by an apostle? Well, Paul kind of was an apostle, kind of wasn't. In fact, when he got into trouble often, when he would argue with Peter, like he would tell, okay, you guys have to try to imagine the audacity of Paul, okay? Peter is like Peter, like Peter, guys. He walked on water, you know, Jesus called him the rock, like he was kind of a big deal, Right? And Paul would say, Peter, I need to explain to you what Jesus meant when he said the thing that you taught me he said. <laughs> right? And you can just imagine Peter being like, oh, I'm sorry, Paul. I forgot you weren't there. You never met Jesus. Like, what, what kind of audacity did Paul have explaining to the 12 what Jesus really meant? And yet he did. Right? And, so, and you see this in Paul's letters, right? You see that there are people traveling around to his church saying, well, Paul's not a real apostle. And all this kind of thing. And yet... Paul's books are like a quarter of our New Testament or more, right? And so somehow, even though he didn't know Jesus and was kind of an apostle, depending on who you ask, certainly he considered himself an apostle, but none of the other guys did, right? He's, his books are still a, a huge part of our scriptures. Uh, the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, um, but it's in, right? Uh, the Gospel of Thomas, which is attributed to one of the twelve, did not make it in, um, so, so that's what you see with these. Yeah, there are some criteria that got used in a few different places, but they weren't universally applied. And the only thing that was universal was that over a period of hundreds of years, churches all over the world affirmed that the Spirit was speaking them to them through these books. And that's the only, that's the only universal criterion. And that, like, how do you measure that one, right? I mean, was it written by an apostle? That's a check yes or no, Right. But how do you say, like, is the Spirit ministering to your congregation through this? Like, how do, you, how do you measure that? How do you put it on a spreadsheet? You can't. Which is why it took a few hundred years for us to, to work all of this out. So, and again, I know that freaks, that freaks some people out. They want, again, they, it would be nice if God just, like, dropped it in an envelope, stuck it in the mail, and it showed up. But that's, that is, that's just, yeah, that's, that's not what happened. And 
I'm okay with that. I'm fine with that. Doesn't that doesn't rock my faith or make me question like that? I'm I'm totally fine with that being something that is the Holy Spirit's responsibility, uh, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. So. Good. Any other questions about canonization? I know that's a that's a huge that's a huge thing. Okay. All right, let's go ahead and go into the great schism of 1056. Uh so again there was there was sort of one universal church around the world thanks to thanks to all these roots coming together through the church councils into the trunk of orthodoxy, right? Until 1056. Uh, and even though there was one big church, that's, uh, we should not have believed that they all agreed on everything or all got along all the time or anything like that. In fact, there was a growing tension for several hundred years between the eastern and western parts of the church. Uh, if you know your world history, you know that at, cer- at a certain point, and I'd look it up so I couldn't tell you when, uh, even the Roman Empire itself split, right? And there was an eastern Roman Empire that was uh, centered at Constantinople, and there was a western Roman Empire that was centered in Rome. Right? And the church kind of t- did the same kind of thing. There, and a lot of that's cultural. There was just like a big cultural difference between the East and the West, as there even still is today. If you've ever traveled over in Europe and then made your way over to the Middle East, like two totally different worlds, right? And it was no different in the ancient world. And so you had, you had really kind of two major centers of the church. You had one in Constantinople and one in Rome. And they both had bishops or patriarchs, a leader. There was a patriarch in Constantinople and there was a patriarch in Rome. And the patriarchs in Rome thought that they should be running everything because Peter moved to Rome, and he was the first bishop of Rome. And again, as we discussed before, Peter's kind of a big deal. Jesus said, Peter, on you, I'm going to build my church. And they're like, well, I mean, our bishops are direct descendants from Peter, like in authority, not, you know, not necessarily biologically. And so Rome should be the head of the church. That's what Jesus wanted. Obviously, the People in Constantinople didn't think that was such a great idea. There were lots of other theological issues, and again, really a lot of cultural issues. And so it all came to a head in 1056, where they officially split into two different churches, two different groups. They broke fellowship. Okay, One branch went on to become what we identify as Roman Catholicism, under the authority of the, church, the Bishop of Rome, who we call the Pope. Right? And the other one went on to become the Orthodox Church. Now, that's a little bit confusing because we said this was Orthodoxy, right? But this is, so that's why I wrote Eastern Orthodoxy. They continued to call themselves, the, so you're like, you guys can be the Catholic Church, we'll be the right church, right? Because that's what Orthodox means, right thinking, right? You call yourself whatever you want, we'll be the right thinking church. Um, so, uh, now, if we were an Eastern Orthodox denomination, we, our family tree would look different, right? This, that would be the main trunk. There's just as much diversity in the Orthodox, we just didn't, we're not Orthodox, so this is where like Greek Orthodox, uh, Russian Orthodox, Coptic Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, there's, there's tons, there's tons of branches over here too, and a lot of that ends up being cultural, so like the Greek Orthodox Church is obviously based out of Greece, and they use a lot of Greek in their mass and stuff like that. Russian Orthodox, same thing, it's just with Russian, like all that kind of stuff, and so uh, how many of you have ever been to a Greek Orthodox Church? Anyone go to Greek Fest in Dayton? Get up to go on the tours of the building or anything like that? It's really, if you never have, Greek Festival is usually the weekend, it's usually right around Labor Day, weekend after Labor Day? Anyone off the top of your head? Yeah. 
weekend after Labor Day. You can go to the Greek festival. It costs like five or ten bucks to get in, but you can get a pretty decent euro while you're in there. And then they give you a free tour of their building. And it's really a neat thing. They kind of explain a lot of the ins and outs of their denomination and the history and all of that. And their, uh, their buildings are always very elaborately decorated. And uh, when they're in their, their worship is like three hours long on a Sunday morning. And they have a lot of incense and bells and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's very, very different from what we do. So if you ever, if you ever feel like skipping church for a three-hour Greek Orthodox Mass, uh, let me know. <laughs> but it is, it, is, it is kind of a cool thing. So... Uh, and then, of course, the other big branch is, what, again, what became what we identify as Roman Catholicism. Uh, now, and that continued for about another 1,500 years before there was the next big split, and that was what we would identify as the Protestant Reformation. Okay? Now, this is, this is hopefully getting into territory that sounds familiar to your ears. But in the 1500s, we had three distinct and more or less simultaneous Reformations. One happened in Germany in 1517. Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest, uh, nailed a, a list of ref, uh, ideas for Reformation, demands for how the church needed, the Catholic church needed to change, nailed them to a church door on Halloween. And uh, that led to a little process where three years later he got excommunicated from the church, kicked out of the church, said that he's not a Christian. And so he started his own denomination called Lutheranism. What's really interesting about Lutheranism, or about all of these names, is that they all pretty much started as slurs. So what would happen in the church is anytime there was a heresy, anytime there was something that was considered outside the bounds of, of orthodoxy, they would label it after the, after the guy who started it. So there's a heresy in the ancient church called Arianism after a guy named Arius, right? So when Luther kept teaching and ministering and the Catholic church called his followers Lutherans, that was meant as a derogatory slur, saying you're heretics, you're not Christians, you're Lutherans. Okay, and of course Luther was not thrilled about that, but it stuck. And today that's obviously not something that we consider bad. Uh, the same thing happened in Geneva, in Switzerland, with a guy named John Calvin. Okay, did the same kind of thing. His followers ended up being called Calvinists, right? People who followed John Calvin. And both of these, the Lutheran and the Calvin splits, were primarily doctrinal. Right? They had some serious divergent of, of practices and beliefs that they said these things need to change. The church, is, the church is going down wrong theological paths, and they need to come back to what's right, right? what's orthodox, what's good. And, uh, and so that's, that's why they split. So when, when they split, their worship services changed. Right? They changed how they did stuff because that was what they were, that was what they were arguing about, was the, the practice and the thinking and the theology. Now, the other big one was the Anglican Reformation. And uh, this happened in uh, uh, the 1530s, so it's really really around the same time. But this was in England. And there was a king... Now, this is all political. I'm sure you're shocked by that. Politics and religion have been good friends for a long time. Uh, but the king of England, Henry VIII, decided that he did not want to be with his wife, Catherine the Great, anymore. And so he petitioned the pope... For an annulment, you can't get divorced in the Catholic Church, but they could annul your marriage, which is basically say you were never actually married. Okay. The Catholic Church would not grant the annulment for a whole host of reasons, and so basically, uh, and there's there's a lot of debate about how exactly how uh, thoughtful Henry VIII was, and how much he was actually doing this, and how much he was being manipulated into it. Again, as kind of a power play. 
But the end of the story is he broke the nation of England away from Catholicism and started a church called the Church of England. And the word Anglican is an old English way of saying English. right? So the, the, the Anglican church is the Church of England. And it was a state church. The head of the Church of England is the, mon- the ruling monarch. And uh, it's, you know, it's run by parliament and all that kind of stuff. And so what's interesting about Anglicanism is that because its break was primarily political, a lot of the theology actually stayed really, really similar to Roman, Roman Catholicism. They didn't have the same kind of theological disagreements that Lutheran and, and Luther and Calvin did. And so a lot of the theology stayed a lot closer to Roman Catholicism. Uh, they just sort of changed the church government structure. Does that make sense? Okay. So that was, that was the Protestant Reformation. That happened in the 1500s. Uh, there was all kinds of changes sweeping across Europe at the time. Right? This is where you have the, uh, the, the Enlightenment happening, the Renaissance kind of coming up, all of these huge cultural uh, and like, like bedrock kind of cultural changes happening. And you're moving out of the Middle Ages. Uh, you're heading towards, though we're not going to get there for a couple hundred years, you're heading towards the Industrial Revolution. Right? But all, all of these cultural forces are sort of sweeping the church along with it, and, the, and all these big changes are happening in the church as well. Not too long after the Protestant Reformations, there was a pretty massive reform inside of the Catholic Church. It's that same kind of stuff that Luther and Calvin were caught up in. There were other people in the church that also recognized that the Catholic Church needed to change, and they, they just kind of did it, and it, they, they took it a little more slowly. And so pretty quickly, there were some major, major reforms in the Catholic Church as well. All right. Any questions about those three? Okay, uh, just real quick, FYI, Calvinism went on. We're going to, again, that's not really our tradition, so we'll just kind of, we're going to leave it here. But uh, the Presbyterians, if you are familiar with Presbyterians, they were founded by a guy named John Knox in Scotland, and that was, that's, the Cal, that's a Calvinist denomination. Okay, John Knox was a Calvinist. He founded the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. Uh, the Reformed Church, anytime you see a church labeled Reformed anything, uh, that's going to be Calvinist because they were Reformers, right? Uh, a lot of the congregational churches tend to be Calvinist. So there's, there's, plenty, of, there's plenty of Calvinism that's, uh, that is around today. It's, it's a thriving theological tradition. Lutheranism, same thing. There's, there's a few different branches of Lutheranism today. The Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Yeah. ELCA, there's a Missouri Synod Lutherans, there's, there's a few different groups of them, and they actually kind of spread all along. Some of them are very theologically liberal, some are very theologically conservative. Uh, same thing in the Calvinist Church. There's Presbyterian Churches of America, the Presbyterian Churches of the United States of America, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Like there's just there's there's tons of different you know flavors of it. Um, there's one particular group of Lutherans that's kind of interesting. A group called the Pietists that broke off in the uh, late 1600s, early 1700s. Um, the Pietists. They comes from the word piety, uh, which you may have heard before. But that places a, an emphasis on personal responsibility for spirituality, right? That, that church isn't just a cultural thing. It's not just a family thing. But it's a, I have to have a personal relationship with God. I have to take this seriously. You know, it's, it's up to me to engage in spiritual disciplines. Uh, that's all, another big thing that they, in, uh, that they emphasized was the involvement of lay people in the church government, that the church ought not just be run by clergy, by the priests and the hierarchy and all that, but that that you guys all, that you should have a say, that you should have a voice in what the church does and in who the church is, that that came out of the pietists. And so 
Again, it's interesting to think about because we kind of take those ideas for granted today. We think, oh, church, you know, all Christians have always thought that, but it had to come from somewhere. And in this case, that those kinds of ideas came really from the Pietists in the, the 17th century. Uh, this is also the branch uh, coming from this same kind of area is where like the, the Mennonites and the Amish, all of those traditions come from. It's from these branches of Lutheranism. They all emerged in Germany and Eastern Europe and stuff in the the 16 and 1700s, which is, again, about 100 years and more after Luther. You said Mennonites and who else? The Amish. Thank you. I was telling someone before class, um, my great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandfather came to North America to found the Moravian Church in North America, and the Moravians are, uh, are pietists. So, 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 then, yep, I'm, I'm over here, and then I can't get over here. Uh, <laughs> Uh, okay, any question about that later here, the, the Pietists and the Calvinists? Yeah, great. Um, my question is, um, in Germany, um, how long um, was it way back when they started the, this religion? or Lutheranism? Yeah. Uh, 1500s. Yeah, so about 600, 500 years ago. Yeah. Another uh, reason for the schisms, too, was a practical thing that uh, the Catholic Church somebody's death and so they became an economic power yes. and the king saw that as a threat that over time all the lands that he owns and controls is slipping out of his control yep. and, and uh, if in the fullness of time he would not control anything <laughs> yeah it, it's amazing I don't know if you heard J.R.'s comment but he said you know uh, particularly in the middle ages you know, the, if someone would die and they would leave their lands to the church, these, these monarchs would see more and more of their lands being controlled by the church, which, of course, was controlled then by the Vatican in, in Rome. And, and so for them to reform, to break away, was an easy way for them to make a land grab and consolidate their power. Uh, now, again, it depends on how cynical you want to be, right? If you say, well, all these reformations are just political and none of them were really theological. Certainly we know that, for instance, Martin Luther would have been executed if it had not been for some German princes that saw political gain in protecting him from the Catholics. Okay, we, I mean, that's just, we, we see, we've seen that happen, right? Uh, I, I'm, I'm more of the persuasion that it's all such a complicated mess that it's about impossible to suss out what was religious and what was political and those things are very often hard to distinguish in, in the first place. And so particularly when you try to look back 500 years into the past and sort them out, good luck. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's fascinating how, how intertwined all of this stuff is and how you can't separate European history from particularly this kind of church history. So They, they also felt at that time that uh, kings ruled by divine right mm-hmm. and uh, the church granted them that right. So <laughs> government and the theocracy were entwined so yep. closely that it's hard to tell where one began and the other absolutely okay so we're going to now move just to the Anglican branch for now this is now kind of moving forward in the tradition there were three big movements that emerged from Anglicanism that are important for our sort of our own tradition and again I would just like to remind you that this is a Nazarene family tree. Mm-hmm. If it were 
uh, an Amish family tree or a Greek Orthodox family tree look different, just like all of our family trees look different from each other, right? We're drawing ours, so don't think that just because I put holiness at the top and Eastern Orthodox has its own little branch over here that that means somehow we're the right ones and they're like unimportant or something like that. This is just, we're talking about Nazarenes and this is our family tree, and so uh, this is, that's why it's drawn out the way it is. It's not to devalue other denominations. Uh, okay, so the first one is, again, one you've probably heard of, the Puritans. These are the ones that came over on the Mayflower, et cetera, et cetera. They were, uh, they were a Reformation movement within the Anglican Church in the 1600s, so again, about 100 years or so after the original Anglican Reformation. Um, you know, the, the Puritans had a strong emphasis on Scripture. They also had a similar kind of em uh, emphasis on personal piety, like what we see in the Pietists. Uh, it was something that was kind of just in the atmosphere at the time. And then kind of alongside them, we had a group called the Society of Friends, which we now today more know as Quakers, though they do not call themselves Quakers. They call themselves Friends, right? Mm -hmm. They're another group that emerged from within the Anglican tradition uh, that put an emphasis on the priesthood of all believers, right? That every person has the same access to God. And they also put an emphasis on that, a that every person can experience the presence of God. That it's not just a priest or something like that, but that each person can connect to God and have an experience of God. That was something, and if you've ever been to a, what they call a, an, an unprogrammed worship service that Quakers do, they all just sit in silence and wait for God to show up. There's no, there's no preaching, there's no music, it's not planned, it's not programmed. They just sit and, and if someone has an experience of God, they share it with the community, and if not, they sit there in silence. Uh, so that's that's kind of that's uh, that's what their tradition is all about. Chris, did you have a yeah? Another interesting evolution at this stage of Methodism with Puritans and Quakerism is this is about the time that the Bible came out in print in English and to the general public. Where prior to that, it was always written in Latin or Greek or yep. whatever, and it was held within the church by the clergy. Yeah, it's really not a coincidence that we see an explosion of denominations at the same time that the Bible becomes accessible to more people because all of a sudden everyone can read the Bible and interpret it for themselves. And this was, I mean, this was it to a degree why people were not given Bibles, right? The clergy was like, as long as we have them, then we're telling them what it means. Uh, and as soon as people are reading it for themselves, you kind of have this explosion of all of these different ways of practicing. Andrew, what do you think of the right? internet? What the internet? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. This is yep. right yeah, was yeah, yeah. That's a great observation. So, um, again, I I like having a Bible, so I'm I'm a fan. But yeah, Nick. Well, I also like to point out that at that time you also saw an explosion of political revolution. Oh yeah, absolutely. The printing press, man. If we could just go back and solve all our problems, get rid of that thing, <laughs> keep everyone illiterate, right? Uh, <laughs> what do they say? They say knowledge is power, right? And you see that this is true. Um, yeah. This is why we should all be readers, right? Because if you do not avail yourself of information, then you'll believe whatever everyone tells you. Uh, okay, so the, the other big Reformation movement of, of Anglicanism is Methodism. And this was two brothers named John and Charles Wesley. This was in the early 1700s. And they were, again, Anglicans who were good, faithful Anglicans who, who placed a strong emphasis on ideas of personal piety and sanctification. Uh, John Wesley believed that, that Christians could become sanctified. They could experience the power of the Holy Spirit and have victory over sin in their lives. 
And that was something that was not being taught in the theological tradition that he was a part of. And so he started organizing these small groups that would ask each other a question. They look very much like an accountability group. If any of you have ever been in something like that, you know, they would meet weekly or sometimes daily. They would ask each other these questions. They would have extremely high standards for each other. They would hold each other accountable. Uh, and and there were, it, it was very methodical. And so he was labeled a Methodist after the methods that he was teaching people to follow to practice personal holiness, personal piety. Uh, it was really once he came to America and started teaching and preaching over here that he gained a lot of popularity, and Methodism really became its own denomination. He never set out to start his own denomination, but that just kind of just what happened. What you'll see in a lot of these as you move through church history is that a lot of the Reformation movements that end up sprouting new denominations didn't start out that way. They, they, meant, they were meant by their founders to be internal reforms. But the, the larger established institution was not having any of that reform, and so they'd stiff arm them out, and the movement just ends up becoming its own thing because it's not allowed to change the larger institution. So, um, yeah, so that's what, that, that was where Methodism came from. Uh, Methodism really caught on in America and spread over here quite a bit. And when it came to America, it interacted with uh, some interesting an interesting phenomenon called the Great Awakenings. Now, there were at least two of these, maybe three of them, depending on how you argue, uh, but they were essentially periods of revival where all over the country there was just all this, like, these new, fresh experiences of God breaking out. Uh, the first one happened before the American Revolution, and it has actually been argued by several scholars that it was a big impetus to cause the American Revolution. Um, the second one happened in the, 18, in the early 1800s, center to that? John Cotton? Uh, I'd have to go back and look specifically. This is where you have guys like John Edwards and uh, George Whitfield, the Wesleys. I mean, and so again, you have all these preachers who just travel around. They'd show up at a town, they'd set a, a tent up at someone's farm, and they'd preach for a week or two weeks or three weeks or whatever, and then they'd go on to the next town. Right? And so everyone, didn't matter what church you went to, everyone would come out to these big tents and they'd have these big, and they'd have revivals, right? Particularly in the Second Great Awakening, some of these revivals got a little bit crazy. Um, and it was, these were called the holiness revivals. And people were having these fresh experiences of the Holy Spirit. They were having, uh, and, and so what would happen is, again, they'd, all, they'd come out to the tent, right? And then they'd all go back after the revival was over, after a couple weeks or whatever. And they would find that they weren't welcomed in their churches. They'd have these fresh experiences of the Spirit that they didn't want to bring into their church. And, and the church wasn't having any of them. And what you'd actually see, and this was mainly happening in Methodist churches. It happened in a lot of churches, a lot of denominations, but it was especially prevalent in the Methodist church. And the Methodist church, the pastor is completely, like his job is completely dictated by the, the hierarchy of the church. And so the, what the Methodist church started doing is like they would have a, like they'd have a whole church that, was, that had caught this like revivalist spirit. So they would move the pastor and put him in a church that wasn't, and then they'd bring another pastor in that wasn't to the church that was and just try to squash it. Right, and because they, they were not again, they were interested in this kind of revival, even though what a lot of these Methodists had been feeling was that the institutional church had been straying from this personal piety and personal holiness that John Wesley had been teaching, and so they were trying to bring it back, and and working out of these experiences they had in these revivals, and they were they were basically being rebuffed by the institution, and so all over the country, and not just from the Methodist Church, but again mainly from the Methodist Church, people were being forced out of their churches and these were some of them were pastors many of them were lay people 
And so what happens, they all kind of started looking around and saying, oh, you two, us two, well, and so they just kind of started grouping together. And the only thing that they really all had in common was that they'd all been, they'd all had this, these new, fresh experiences of the Holy Spirit, and they weren't welcomed in their own churches. And so they, these people called themselves the come-outers. They were the people who came out of their denominations, out of their churches, to form these new little groups. And so all over the country, there were these little groups of people forming whose what they had in common was this fresh experience of the Spirit. Right? And they were just kind of grouping together with other people who had had these similar experiences. And the groups kind of started getting bigger. And, of course, as they got bigger, they bumped into other groups. And they started, they formed. And so all over the country, you found these holiness, what they started becoming was holiness denominations. Right? That started forming. And the bigger they got, the bigger they'd see other ones around them. And the Church of the Nazarene was one of those denominations. It ended up, uh, we were originally called the Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene. After Pentecost, after the, the first gifting of the Holy Spirit, right? Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene. And so we started joining with all kinds of other denominations. And this was all happening in the late 1800s, um, post-World War, or post-Civil War, uh, all of that, right? Our founder was a guy named Phineas F. Brzee. Uh, I have a bobblehead of him in my office, if you want to see it. I should have brought it with me. Uh, I got him and John Wesley, so... Uh, but so, so there's a, we owe a lot theologically to Methodism, which owes a lot to Anglicanism, which owes a lot to Catholicism. That's kind of our direct you know, lineage back to, to, the, to the early church. Uh, we also obviously are borrowing from several of these other movements, right? Um, mainly because we're an American church, and the church in America was formed by all of these groups coming over, like, like we are, the melting pot, right? <laughs> Even theologically, we end up being a melting pot. And so, um, yeah, so the, the Nazarene church, that, that was that. Now, you might wonder why we don't have the name Pentecostal in our church anymore. That's, that's because in the 1900s, there was another movement that started on Azusa Street in California called the, uh, the Pentecostal Revival. And this was another kind of revival, the Azusa Street revivals, right? Where people, A-Z-U-Z-A, I think, Azusa Street. Yeah. Oh, you've been there. Okay, yeah. And... These, these revivals were marked by a particular experience of the Holy Spirit that today is called speaking in tongues. Okay, and that's that where, what, and what happens in that is, is a, a person who is worshiping has an experience of the Holy Spirit where they begin speaking in a language that not only do they not know, but that no one knows. I just thought it was Spanish. No. <laughs> it's not. I promise you. That's what I think, too. Okay, now, this particular... We talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. This particular manifestation of the Holy Spirit is very divisive. Some of the, some of the early Nazarenes called it demonic. They called it Satan's babbling, things like this. Okay, so not, very, not much gray area or wiggle room there. Right? And that's actually, now these, these groups labeled themselves Pentecostal for the same reason we took the word Pentecostal, right? Going back to the Holy Spirit. Um, and so we, in order to not be confused with the Pentecostal churches, which were practicing these charismatic gifts, these ecstatic gifts of the Spirit, dropped that from our name, and we became just the Church of the Nazarene. Okay, now the Azusa Street Revival was, I believe, 1920, 1921. So that's, a, that's the time period that this is all happening, right? So we've been around at that point for about a generation, a little longer. Uh, I think our first church manual came out in 1908, so if that gives you an idea of the, the timeline. Uh, now, I want to talk a little bit of, so, so again, theologically, that's where we sit today. We are a holiness denomination. 
What that means is that we believe in personal piety, that everyone should have an experience of a relationship with God, and that not just should you be forgiven of your sin, but that you should pursue sanctification. You should pursue a sin-free life, and that that is a life that, that God promises to all believers. It's something that we should strive for, and it's something that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we work towards. Um, we really are a very theologically generous denomination overall. Um, we, we try intentionally in our manual that we have, that we update every four years, to be as broad as possible on most things. And uh, we've talked about this a little bit, right? We don't have a particular stance on creation. You can be a six-day creationist, or you can believe that God used evolution to create things and Big Bang and all that kind of stuff. If you ultimately confess God as creator, you can be a Nazarene. Uh, we don't have a particular end times theology. You can believe in a rapture or not. You can believe in a seven-year tribulation or a millennial reign or not. As long as you believe that Jesus is coming back, that's, that's it. That's all you have to believe to be a Nazarene. And there are other traditions and other denominations that with lots of issues draw much harder lines than that on a lot of things. They kind of... And this is something I love about our denomination. On most things... You're probably shocked by this, right? I have pretty strong opinions on most things, mm -hmm. right? But there are very few things that as a Nazarene pastor, uh, I have to have strong opinions on. And so that, that lets me be theologically generous inside of our church. It lets, me, it lets me have biblical fellowship and communion with people that don't agree with me on a lot of issues because at the end of the day, what I ultimately confess is I'm not God, I'm not the Holy Spirit, and I'm not the first person in the history of the universe to have theology figured out when I'm 33 years old. And so there's a, there's a, there's a humility that my denomination encourages me to have because we say, look, there's a lot that's unclear and we're not going to take stands on things. We're not going to divide on things the Bible isn't clear on. Uh, and so we, we have, a, we have a, a very generous kind of an orthodoxy here. Um, now that bothers some people. Uh, I have, for instance, uh, there have been times after we've had our children's pastor Sheila preach that I've had someone come up to me and say, well, I don't think women should be preachers. And I'm like, sorry, Nazarenes do. And that's the end of that discussion. Yeah, there's all kinds of, well, and so, yeah, we'll get into that in a minute. Angie's saying, and yeah, there's some scriptures about that. Sure, kind of. Yeah, but that was a third and eighth when women weren't educated. Kind of. I mean, yeah. Here, here's the, this, is, this is what the quadrilateral is for, right? The quadrilateral. There is a scripture that says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men. Okay, there, that, that's a Bible verse. Okay, now we use the Wesleyan quadrilateral. We say, well, that's a scripture. Okay. Are there other scriptures that talk about the same issue? And there are. There's lots of them. Uh, what does the tradition of the church say? Well, it's pretty complicated. There's actually a lot of places in the church tradition that women have taught and had authority over men. Um, in fact, Paul himself, the guy that wrote that text, actually talks about women who teach and have authority over men in other places. So whatever he's saying there, I mean, unless he's just contradicting himself, you know, has to mean something else. We use our experience. Have I, as a man, been taught by a woman and felt the minister to by the Holy Spirit? I have. Well, that has to weigh in on how I interpret this verse, right? Uh, and we use reason. We say, well, does that make sense? Does that does, does it fit or not? And what our church has come to is saying, like, no, we think that 
We think that the Spirit calls and equips both men and women to all ministries, that there is no distinction when it comes to gender in the church for who can do what. So, now there are other branches who take a very different stand on that. And some of them come to our church not knowing what Nazarenes believe, and they get mad that they were taught by a woman, and I shrug my shoulders and say, if that's a big deal to you, you might want to check out one of our lovely sister churches and another branch of the family tree, because that's going to keep happening here, because that's something our denomination has, has taken a stand on. Uh, other things, you know, again, I, I said from the stage one time, you can be, believe in evolution and be a Nazarene, and I had a couple different people who very nicely took me out to lunch afterwards to have a conversation about why that's not okay, and I got to say, well, thanks for lunch. Um, it actually is okay, and I understand that you don't like that, but this is our denomination has intentionally said that's not going to be something we divide over. So my encouragement to you would be, if that's something that really bothers you, find one of those Nazarene brothers or sisters who believes differently from you, and you guys explore that together. You know, because the church says those are both okay. Those are both inside, you know. And, again, I know that makes some people uncomfortable. They want more lines to be drawn. I'm, I'm really happy to be a part of a church that's a lot more generous than that about some of these really difficult issues. Um, and then, you know. Why can't we just get along and be happy? Great <laughs> question is a good one. Why can't we all just get along and be happy? There are, there are some things at the end of the day that, that make you in or, an insider or an outsider, right? I mean, so for instance, if someone says, well, you know, I really like Jesus. I think he's a good guy. I think he had some good stuff to say. I think if everyone did what he said, the world would be a better place. I just don't think he's God. I go, well, I mean, cool that you think that, and everyone's entitled to their own opinion, and I certainly can't make you believe anything else, but you don't get to say that and call yourself a Christian. Because a Christian is someone who confesses that Jesus is God, who came to earth in human form and died for the sin of humanity and was raised on the third day to inaugurate a new creation week, and is even now at the right hand of God making all things new. That's who Jesus is. And you don't have to believe that. It's a free world. But if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. And that doesn't mean I have to, like, oppress you or stone you to death or hate you. I mean, we can still be friends and we can still get along, but it's a matter of definitions at some point. You know? So, I mean, there's a reason that this is, that this tree does not include other world religions, right? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, there's a difference between life and death, and we believe that Jesus is life and everything else is death. And so there are some things that make you a part of the tree and some things that don't. And our denomination has a particular set of guidelines about that. Um, are we, do we have everything right? Probably not. I doubt that we're the first denomination that's cracked it in 2,000 years. You know, I'm sure when we get to heaven, we'll go, oh, okay. Just like everyone else will, right? I mean, that's... Um, and, and what matters... What matters is that we are continuing to be a part of this conversation, continuing to be a part of this family, continuing to, to let the Spirit guide us and teach us and instruct us. And, and the Church of the Nazarene is, is undergoing a lot of changes today, you guys, a lot. For the first time, it was, only, it was about the time I became Nazarene, about five years ago, where we crossed the point where there were more Nazarenes outside the United States than inside the United States. There were more non American, non-USA Nazarenes than American Nazarenes. And that's going to change 
the church. Because for a long time, Nazarenes were small, mostly rural Americans. And so the, the manual, our, our way of doing church and all that, it made a lot of sense as long as you were like a, a small rural American church. And the more that our missionaries have gone out and, and people in all kinds of other countries, I think we're in 156 countries in the world, have become Nazarene and not become small rural American, but become Christian in the Wesleyan holiness tradition and started doing theology for themselves, doing this kind of stuff, participating in this conversation, they started going, well, you know, some of these, some of these ways of doing church don't make a lot of sense in our context. And so they've started to have some wiggle room. And now we're getting to the point where the American church, the American Nazarene church, is becoming a minority. And so that's going to continue to change what our denomination believes and how we, how we understand what the gospel is and all of these kinds of things. Um, yeah? Don't you think that when we get so dogmatic in our belief that we're going down the path of legalism of the Pharisees yes. instead of being led by the Spirit? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're taking that that spirit away and kind of mm-hmm. crushing it. Mm-hmm. And faith, for me, the issue for that is always control. The reason I like rules, the reason I like order, the reason I like that is because I don't have to ask questions. I don't have to be uncomfortable. I know, I know the right answer. I know the way things are supposed to be, and I can just—I don't have to think about it. I have to engage in. It. I have a sense of—I have a sense of control and of uh, you know of, of stability. But you really don't know what you believe. Right. Well, and, and Jesus in John 3, when, when he's trying to explain all this to Nicodemus, he says the spirit is like the wind. It comes and it goes, and no one knows where it comes from. And Nicodemus is like, huh? And sometimes, I mean, sometimes you guys, I'll be very honest with you. Sometimes when we get into some of these real thorny issues, that's kind of how I feel. I'm like, huh? What? Like, what do you, you know? But, but at the end of the day, it's not my job to have all the answers, to have everything figured out. Um, I would love for it to be because I'm academic and my like that's kind of part of my DNA is to have the answers, yeah. but right? God has the answers. But God has the answers, yeah. And it's God's spirit, it's God's church, it's not my church. And so I'm called to be faithful with what I have. I'm called to be. I'm called to do the best with what I know. But as Paul said, we all see through a mirror dimly. And and in our day, see mirrors today, there's something, right? You look at them, you see a very sometimes it's not a nice reflection, right? But you see an accurate reflection. Of what you see. In Paul's day, mirrors were pieces of metal that they hammered as flat as they could and polished as nicely as they could, but they just weren't very, you know, reflective. So when Paul says we see as in a mirror dimly, it's more like, you know, your reflection in, in the water after someone's thrown a rock in it, right? I mean, you, you get the idea, but it's not a very good reflection. And that's how Paul says our, the, our, our you know, our theology is. And that that is not meant to discourage us from doing theology. Obviously, you've been in this class this long. I've been in this class this long. We love thinking about these things. It's not to discourage us. It's not to throw our hands in the air and say, well, we're never going to know until we get there, so we might as well not care. That's not it at all. It's about humility. Exactly. It's about exactly what faith said. We cannot, allow the, we cannot allow these things to put us up on a high horse where we begin condemning and judging and alienating. Yeah, JR. Uh, uh, I would... To answer what Faith was saying, uh, several years ago I was exposed to uh, uh, an Anglican bishop that was uh, in the, uh, he, he did all the uh, Greek kind of icons, Oh yeah. like mm-hmm. in the Trinity Church there in Manhattan next to the World Trade Tower that yeah. was down, and 
And I'd always thought of that as almost akin to idolatry. But when I heard him talk, uh, he, this was like a, uh, this was like going into the mission field for him to go into painting icons. He did a style called the Russian style, and uh, if you've ever seen Russian Orthodox icons, it, you know they're like at prayer stations that they go to. They're done in gold leaf and tempera paint made out of egg. Uh, I mean, there's an exact way they have to do it. And he has to be registered because some of these icons are worth millions of dollars and they want to keep fakes off the market. So he has to sign off and register all of his work. But he's done these icons in some of the great churches around the really? world. But to him, it's not just a painting. You know, they look kind of primitive and odd-like, but uh, they pray over it. They uh, say he was doing Peter or mm -hmm. Paul or one of the apostles. He would pray about it, uh, meditate about it, uh, think about it, think about the uh, situation that he was in and whatnot. All this goes into the painting uh, while he's doing it. And uh, it, it took... It takes a great deal of uh, uh, spiritual and, and physical input to do yep. one of these things. And yet, a lot of that history was destroyed by a group called the Iconoclast. Maybe even the, they might have burned the, the old uh, library in Alexandria, I'm not oh, yeah. sure. But uh, uh, a lot of our church history was destroyed by this dogmatic idea that... Uh, they, they literally took that commandment not to create any image and, and uh, they took that literally so they went out of destroying statuary and paintings mm -hmm. and whatnot. But uh, uh, when I saw this guy, he's a very dedicated person. He takes this as a very serious mission. Yeah. And this is one of those branches yep. off of there Absolutely. That, 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 uh, of orthodoxy. That, uh, well, and you know, to, to your point, there are lots of things in the individual traditions that end up being very confusing to people outside the tradition, and sometimes even to people inside the tradition. So the, uh, the worship of icons, or the, the, the veneration of icons is one of those, as JR mentioned. Uh, there are these images that particularly the Orthodox branches of the church use, though not only the Orthodox use, that a lot of other Protestant traditions like ours would consider idolatry because you're, it looks like if you watch someone praying with an icon, it looks like they're praying to the icon. And it's like, oh, you're, you're worshiping this thing instead of worshiping God. Now, are there probably some people inside of the Orthodox tradition who have not been trained well, who are sort of engaging in some kind of an idolatry with icons? Yeah, probably. I mean, yeah. But it, once you understand how icons function in the Orthodox tradition, you understand that's not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, a comparable example would be the way saints function in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, you know, the... Uh, I hear all the time Protestants saying, well, like, you know, again, the Catholics are idolaters because they're praying to the saints and not to God, and, and you should only pray to God and not to the saints. And uh, I'm like, well, yeah, that, you're right, okay, but, and, and again, are there people in the Catholic Church who pray to saints and it it's really ends up kind of in the realm of idolatry? Sure there are, but that's not actually right. <laughs> like, that's not what's supposed to be happening. And a priest would also say, no, that's, that's not okay. You know, the, the way saints function in the Catholic Church is much more akin uh, and, and this is oversimplifying, but I, I found it helps. Any of you who have ever lost a relative, 
and you've said, you know, you've said like, well, they're, you know, grandpa's with Jesus now or something like that. Um, that's really the same kind of an idea where the departed saints have gone to be with God and they are now interceding. They're praying for us, you know, much in the way we would all have this idea that our relatives who have gone over in heaven with God, you know, would, would be there and are. I've heard plenty of Protestants say the same kind of thing. Well, God's, you know, grandpa's with Jesus now and, you know, he's he's getting everything ready for you to come up there or something like that. And, um, and you can say that that's just some silly trite thing that people say when someone dies if you want. Or you can say that there's some sort of a sense that we have that the people who have gone on before us are still with us in an important way. And that they, you know, that, that they can be an example for us or that even even that they are in some real sense praying for us. On the other side, uh, so again, that's a whole different rabbit trail. But okay, we do not have time to do the other big chunk that I was thinking about doing. So what I would prefer to do instead is spend the last. I'm sure that there are plenty of other questions that you guys have about other denominations that you've encountered or been a part of or something like that. And I don't know. Church history is not my strong point. I was doing a lot of stuff on Wikipedia, getting ready for tonight. Um, so, but I'm happy to take a swing at it. And if I don't know, I'll just tell you I don't know. So are there, are there other questions you have about other denominations or practices or things you've come into contact with? The Salvation Army. Yes. Comes off of Methodist Church, correct? Uh, I believe that's true. That's not question. Okay. Anyone else? Yeah, go ahead. Why did the Salvation Army branch off? I don't know. Um, my guess would be it would be something. And actually, okay, so I don't know the Salvation Army. I'm going to just tell you some ideas. And then we can read a Wikipedia afterwards and find out which, if any of them, is right. Uh, so it's entirely possible that the Salvation Army has not branched off, that it's just like a, a ministry that the Methodist Church runs. That's like one kind of a – but it would be like its own thing that kind of still has loose ties to Methodism, something like that. Uh, it's also possible that similar to some of the other things we've seen, that there's, there's a ministry that the founder of it wanted to do, and he was Methodist, and the Methodist Church wasn't interested in it, so he left – and just kind of keeps his own thing. But again, like theologically, they'd still be very in line with Methodism and things like that. Because it was, it was not so much a theological difference that they had. But it was like a, I don't know what you want to call it, an institutional difference or a leadership difference or you know, something like that. It would probably be some, some one of those kinds of things. There's actually tons and tons of organizations, particularly in today's world, that technically still have denominational affiliations uh, but they're just very loose at this point. So like some of the, some of the big <laughs> private universities like Harvard and Yale and Princeton were founded as religious schools. In fact, Harvard and Princeton, they also have divinity schools where you study religion, right? And they came, they were founded by particular uh, denominations and they have more or less, you know, Duke is a Methodist school. Some of the great Methodist theologians are Duke guys. So they also have a good basketball team, I hear, right? You know, so um, basketball and theology. Uh, so you see a lot of that with those kinds of different institutions where they they either have broken off or never really officially broke off but just kind of like slowly drifted away. Uh, and then again, some of them just have really, really strong ties. It's just downplayed for all kinds of different reasons. So, And I, I don't know which one of those the Salvation Army falls into. According to Wikipedia. Yes. <laughs> Salvation Army is a mainstream Methodist, although it is a distinctive in government and practice. Okay, so... So they're Methodist in theology, but they've kind of broken away in government. They're not run by the denomination anymore. Okay. Is it a mission? Yeah. 
And again, that's some of those things, you know, they start out small and they just blow up and yeah, yeah Nick. They don't practice baptism or communion. That's okay, so there's a good they don't consider themselves a full church. They would encourage their own members to go do the sacraments at the mother church. Um, because for you know for again for a number of reasons so I was like for instance I was a part of a campus ministry that was Baptist back when I was Baptist uh, Southern Baptist and the the campus ministry same thing they did not do baptism they did not do communion because they wanted to reinforce that they were not a church they worked with the church and so they would not do well they didn't call them sacraments they called them uh, something else Uh, but yeah their officers do marry people Okay, well, yeah, see, you just never know. Um, I say about the same time as the WCC and the Prohibition. Is that, I don't, I, my Salvation Army history is very bad. So, <laughs> sure, sounds good. Um, the, uh, you know, the other thing, another thing, another comment I would make just sweeping across all of this, and those of you who are historians have already noted some of these, like the invention of the printing press and all that kind of stuff, is that a lot of the, a lot of the, the big changes in the church happen at the same time as a lot of big changes in world history. And so, it's, it, again, it's, it's less that there was a particular religious reason for Reformation and more that there was just something in the, the cultural bedrock that was shifting. And so politics were shifting and, and religion, and like everything shifted at the same time. And the church, in some ways, like many institutions, was not willing to shift and so these, these Reformation groups broke out of that. Um, and, and you see that over and over and over. Anytime, anytime you see a bunch of new stuff pop up, you go looking for a cultural reason or a political reason. There's, there's almost always some other massive changes going on in the world at the time. What that should encourage us maybe a little bit about is that the church has been around for a long time and it's going to keep being around until Jesus comes back. And the things that are, seem to be like insanely huge big deals that we're fighting about probably we can calm down a little bit and again go back and find some humility and and find some perspective and realize that this is god's church and god's not gonna let anything happen to it and we're gonna be okay you know it's a big it's a big treat but okay if that's the case yes considering the way our world is changing right now should the church be shifting now i think the church is shifting now I think that there is a pretty big change going on in the church. And I think it has to do with the rise of the Internet. I think it has to do with the rise and and the globalization of our society and the way that so many more like even, you know, even two generations ago. The number of people who had traveled outside of the country they were born in was very low. And today, that's almost a rite of passage. I mean, high school and college kids today, like, it's, you go study abroad for a year. You know, that's, and again, it's not like everyone does, but it's a much, much higher percentage, right? And the number of, the number of uh, immigrants living in our culture, in, in, you know, in here, I mean, that, for instance, that there is a Hindu temple in a suburb of Dayton, Ohio, is, I mean, people, people, you brought someone forward from 50 years ago, they'd be like, what? What is Hinduism? <laughs> you know? Uh, and so, I mean, our world is becoming smaller in a lot of ways, and that's forcing the church to ask a lot of questions it hasn't had to ask before. Um, it's forcing our culture to ask a lot of questions it never had to ask before. And, I th- yeah, I think the church is very much involved in, in a big upheaval. The fact that the church has moved out of the center of the culture. I mean, again, you back up 50 years, and you have the little house on the prairie model. 
where there was nothing else to do on a Sunday because everything was closed. So everyone just came to church because it was better than sitting at your house. And you stayed at church all day and you brought food and there was just like, it was just, church was just kind of like an all day thing. And that's not the case. Now, church has migrated from the center of everything out here to the fringes and now it's just like another option that people have. And so, so what are we going to do to keep the church from dying out? Well, first of all, I would say we don't have to keep the church from dying out. I know God does. So, yes. But to your question, it's still an important one to ask. And I think we would have to... So, for instance, I think a great question that we should be asking is, why do people come to church? Because 50 years ago, you just did. Yeah, I mean, that's just what everyone did, right? Today, it's optional. And so if you can't answer in your own self what's better about getting up on Sunday morning and coming to worship at a church community than sleeping in, there's a good chance you're going to sleep in because who doesn't like to sleep in? But like you said, we've already gone through two, maybe three evangelical revivals in our history of just this thing. Mm-hmm. I think we're on the cusp of another one. I think we're on the cusp of Could be. Also. I do. I would love to be a part of that. You know, I mean, it would be great. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I, think, I think a big question the church is going to have to answer moving forward, if we, want, if we want to be a part of what God is going to do next, let's say it that way, right? Not if we want to keep the church from dying because the church is never going to die. But God is, God is constantly doing new things. God is not behind the cultural change. None of the changes that are happening in the world are catching God off guard. God's way out in front of them, right? And God is constantly doing new things. God is constantly bringing the gospel in new and fresh ways, right? So if we want to be a part of that, we need to be asking questions like, well, when, when the church is not the center of the culture, when the church is not everyone's default setting, why? Why should people be doing church? You know, is the way we are doing church really the difference between life and death? Or is it like a nice thing that makes you feel good? Is it really relevant? Yeah. And, 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 and let's not, yeah, I mean, the well, word relevant. Yeah. Yeah, the word relevant. Yeah, the word relevant gets, gets beat up a lot, right? But, but really, like, is the way we are talking about Jesus good news to people who are far from God? Because it wasn't it wasn't Jesus's day. I mean, Jesus went around throwing parties, and people showed up. So yeah, Nick. And by extension, are there better ways to involve those that aren't necessarily interested that mesh well with that external culture? Yeah. That we can still do church. Yeah. Yeah. So for instance, okay, since we're way out of time, and this is our last class, I'll drop a big bomb on you. Okay. Um, so. When I was in, uh, I got to go to the United Arab Emirates, which is a Muslim nation, officially Muslim, like 95% Muslim, okay, uh, earlier this year. I got to spend a couple weeks there. And it was the first time I had ever lived for an extended period of time in a place where I, as a Christian, was a minority, okay? And I guess also I as a, as a European, because, you know, here I'm majority. So I was a minority. And it was kind of my first experience really getting to live in that for a while. You know, so every day at 4.45 in the morning, the call to prayer goes out. And it's loud. It's meant to wake you up. So it woke me up every day. No, I was not going to pray at 4.45 in the morning. I was probably cursing things more like that. (laughs) And so I started wondering to myself, if I were going to plant a church here, what would I do? Would I really tell someone who's converting from Islam to Christianity that they should stop praying five times a day? Well, why would I do that? What's wrong with praying five times a day? Actually, wouldn't maybe not be good for most of us Christians to pray mm, 
five times a day. Right? Right? So, I mean, now the content of the prayers needs to change, unquestionably. But does the practice itself need to change? Well, no, it doesn't need to change. My parents went to a church in the United Arab Emirates, and it met on Friday. Because the Muslim Holy Day is Friday, their weekend is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday is a work day. And so they went to church on Friday. And there were a few grumpy Christians who wanted to have church on Sunday. So the church had a Sunday evening church service. But it was like going to church on Monday night. You know, you just started your work week, and it was really inconvenient for people. So a lot of people just went to church on Friday morning. Now, why not? And particularly if you're concerned with meeting those people where they are, that probably made a lot more sense. Now, again, there actually are some neat theological reasons to worship on a Sunday, the day Jesus rose from the dead, the first day of the new creation work, et cetera, et cetera, like all the things we've been talking about, right? Mm -hmm. But it kind of makes you start asking the question, like what things about our faith are cultural and what things are really the good news about Jesus raising from the dead? You know, what things about our, our, our religion, our preferences, things that I would prefer, things that I would like, and what things are really the difference between life and death? Because that's what, that's what we claim the stakes are. Right? So, so those, are, hmm, those are theological exercises that I think we need to be having. If, if we really want to be a part of the next new thing God is doing as our, as our world changes, I think that's how we need to be talking about church and thinking about church and we need to worship together. And, and the question should not be, again, what's, what's good for me? It should be, what's good for my world? Because of, we need to step out of our comfort yeah. zone a lot because um, church should be on, on Sunday, not Friday. Right? <laughs> I would hate for people to miss the good news about Jesus because I was wrapped up in my preferences. I would hate that. Mm-hmm. I would hate to stand before God in the end and God to say to me, I created you to be an image of me, a picture of me in the world. And you didn't love them the way I love them. You loved yourself. You loved the way you prefer things. Well, we're all going to hear that. That's, that's, that's what it means to be bent away from God, right? But this is, the, this is the promise of sanctification. This is why I love that we're Wesleyan holiness, is that we really believe that God can reform that in us, that God can rebirth that in us, that we can become the people of God, truly. And that it's going to hurt, right? I mean, for Jesus to fully bear the image of God meant crucifixion. It hurts. But we can become like him. And if that means laying down some of our preferences for the sake of people who are far from God— I want to be a part of a church that's not afraid to do that, that's ready to do that, that's anxious to do that, that's excited to do that, that says it doesn't matter what I want, it's about what they want. Well, it goes to service, too. Everything. We serve them. Yeah, everything. Exactly. It's, it's, it's the model of Jesus. It's pouring ourselves out. It's giving, our, giving you know, yeah, Jesus said it. When the disciples are arguing about who's going to be number two, right? Jesus is number one, but we wonder who's going to be number two. And, and Jesus says... Don't you know that that's what, that's what the pagans do, you guys? Exactly. But that's not the way it is among you. Whoever wants to be first will be last, because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Amen. And so that's how it should be. I mean, that's, we're really talking about practical theology. That's, that's really that's what it begins to be all about. So, okay, I've kept you way too long. I want to pray for us. I do also want to say thank you guys so much for sticking through this class. I've really enjoyed it a lot. 
Uh, I hope you have as well. I hope that you feel at least somewhat capable of continuing to do some theology after this. Uh, I'm going to be teaching another class in the winter term starting in January. I'm still kind of working out the details of it, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun and kind of hopefully maybe a next step past this one. Uh, really kind of getting into some of that, you know, what is going on in the world and how can we be an image of God out there. So uh, let's pray together and then we can be dismissed. God, I'm so grateful to be a part of this big tree that we call your church, this, this big family that spans the world and all throughout history. And we are very glad to be uh, part of the Nazarene Holiness Church, too, God. We, um, we understand that we don't have it all right, but we do believe that you are working through our denomination and, and through our particular way of understanding who you are. And uh, we, we do love the promise uh, that we can be not just with you, but be like you. And so we ask as we go from this place that you would make us mindful of these things we've been talking about, that you would cultivate hearts in us that love the world the way you love the world, and that we would continue to become more like your son Jesus, that we would continue to want to lay down our preferences and lay down the things that we love for the sake of the people who are far from you because that is exactly what you did when we were far from you. So as we go from this place, we go with a spirit of gratitude and a spirit of humility and a spirit of celebration because we are so anxious to see what you do next and how we can be a part of it. We pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Thanks again, everyone. Um, yeah, whew, it's kind of a big letdown. We should have a party or something like that. But um, <laughs> we'll see you all on Sunday, I guess. And we will continue to have these conversations uh, well, for the rest of the time we do church together. <laughs>